Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We're going to go all the way through verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 this morning. We're going to spend time on these four verses in John chapter 10 because there is so much important stuff packed into just a few things that Jesus says inside of this section. We're still in this larger extended um, metaphor, this extended parable of Jesus speaking of himself as the good shepherd. But there's some important and some incredible things said just inside of these four verses. Can you and I imagine a life in which we look at the brokenness within us and the brokenness that is around us and still have access to a life that is more abundant instead of full of despair? Can we imagine that kind of life that we can live? Well, in this passage of Scripture, we read that Jesus brings us exactly that kind of hope. He explains to us the life that he brings to us, he calls it abundant life, abundant life. If nothing else, I want that phrase to land in our hearts and minds and souls this morning. But this kind of hope, this kind of abundant life that is offered to us, Jesus has already made clear. He is the standard of that hope. He is the standard of that kind of life. So as we go through this in passage in John chapter 10, We're talking about Jesus being the good shepherd, and we read a lot of things like this. Jesus leads his sheep, you and me, but he does so from his abundant goodness. Our shepherd leads us from his abundant goodness. Jesus protects the sheep. He warned us against thieves and robbers and will continue to do so, but he protects his sheep. Every single one of his children is valuable to Jesus Christ. We're going to read that Jesus is the door. Jesus is the only way into this life of abundance with him, the heavenly Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the door. We're going to read next time that Jesus will lay down his life for his sheep. His love for his own is so great that he will die on our behalf to make this kind of life available to us. And we keep reading throughout the Gospel of John, and it comes clear in beautiful ways in this passage that Jesus offers us eternal life. Friends, your soul will last forever, and it can revel in the eternal glory of God or be separated from that forever. And Jesus offers us that kind of eternal life. But Jesus also offers us here and now abundant life. That's not an ideal that you and I might reach by the time we hit 85, 86, and we've done everything right. He offers us abundant life this afternoon. He offers us abundant life tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon at 5, no matter what has happened at work. Jesus offers us abundant life. So the offer of life with Jesus Christ is so much more than just life after death but it is full of eternal goodness even here and now. It's not the kind of life that the world mocks, that they believe that Christians lead, that it's ignorant, it's backwards, it's judgmental, it's sour. That's not the life that Jesus offers. The life that Jesus offers is full of more good than you can possibly hold. 
Think about that for a second. The offer that the life that Jesus offers is full of more good, his good, than you and I can possibly hold. As I this week have, have been working through this vocabulary of Jesus offering us abundant life, it made me think of some of the birds that we have in our backyard. We've got a lot of bluebirds, and so just about every morning, Heather and I put out a bunch of peanuts, and we watch the bluebirds come. We're, we're, we've hit that stage of being old people, right? So we're watching birds in our backyard. But we put out a bunch of these peanuts, and there's, there's more peanuts than any of these birds can take away at, at, at one you know, at one sitting. Sometimes these birds will watch them. They'll try to take a peanut and shove it into their gullet and try to grab a second one, but they can't quite do it. There's an abundance of peanuts. As long as we're there in the morning, we're putting them out. There's abundance of, there's more than they can take and more than they can hold. But at some point we leave and the peanuts are gone. But friends, you and I can go back to Jesus Christ over and over and over and over. And there's more than we can ever hold. It is life abundant with Jesus Christ. So here's part of what we're going to read through this morning. These, these things are going to kind of help us understand what Jesus says. If you go through the door, you will be saved. I am the door. If they enter through me, they will be saved. Jesus is our Savior. This is language that Scripture likes to use. Pastor Brooks read it. This morning, we're going to read more of it in our text today. But we are saved by Jesus Christ. A couple of interesting questions to wrestle with in this passage. What are we saved from? And what are we saved to? If we go through the door, we will be saved. The thief wants to rob you of life. The thief wants to rob you of life. The way of life of the enemy is nothing but destructive. And it's destructive to the way of life that you and I were created for. God created us for this intimate relationship with him, full of him, full of his abundance, full of goodness. And the enemy wants to steal every ounce of that. That's why the thief has come. But then we read that Jesus brings abundant life. And that, I think, causes us to pause and to think through what exactly does that mean? How can we wrap ourselves around this abundant life given to us by Jesus Christ. So John chapter 10, let's begin reading in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What Jesus says in this passage is a reaction to how John, the, the writer of the gospel in the previous verse, says that as Jesus has started talking about him being the good shepherd and thieves and robbers, they didn't understand what he meant by this parable. So now what Jesus is doing is he's, he's expanding and he is clarifying. So he continues to talk to them. He continues to talk to us about who he is, the life that he brings, what's different about him than literally everybody and everything else. So Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the way into the sheepfold. 
Jesus is the way into relationship with God. This is such an important thing for us to understand. We put it like this last week, that Jesus is the standard of the Christian faith. Now, that may feel overly obvious to some of us, but increasingly in our culture, not just around the church, but inside of the church, that's a fairly radical thing to say. My feelings are not the standard of the Christian faith. What I want, what I think about myself is not the standard of my relationship with my heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is the door. Jesus didn't say you can walk in by any door that feels right to you. I am the door. If anyone else tries to climb into the sheepfold any other way, thief and robber, watch out. But anyone, he says, who comes in through me will be Say, Jesus is the standard. This is why this clear message about Jesus Christ was at the heart of everything the early church did. The rest of the New Testament, that first generation of Christians after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, it's about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And as you look into the lives of the early church believers and fathers and mothers. It is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They stuck with the good news in the truth about Jesus Christ when the world around them made it a very hard thing to stick with. Through everything from misunderstanding to marginalization to persecution, the early church knew that to give up on the truth of Jesus Christ was to give up the whole game. If you give up on these, these central truths about Jesus, you've given up everything. You might as well just quit. They knew that. They knew that he was the door. They knew that he was the standard. So to speak the good news in Jesus Christ is to speak the kind of truth that sets the human heart free. If we want the human heart to be set free, if we want the human heart to find abundant life, there is one door there is one good shepherd, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds us again in this passage, everyone who came before me, thief and robber, there were false messiahs. There are false messiahs. There are false teachers. There were false teachers. All of them claiming the same kinds of things. All of them claiming substitution as lordship to Jesus Christ. They were substitutes. Their ideologies were better. You follow me, you walk in this way of life instead of following Jesus Christ. All of it is a falsehood. All of it is a substitute for the truth and the good news that there is in Jesus Christ. So Jesus continues to warn us that there are thieves and that there are robbers. I am the door. And anyone who comes in through me will be saved. They will go in and out and they will find pasture. I am the door, and anyone who comes in through me will be saved. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that a lot of people, and sometimes Christians included, don't like the language of being saved. They don't like the language of being saved because it implies that they're lost, that they don't know the way, that they don't know how to 
make their right way through life, a right way into Jesus Christ in relationship with the Heavenly Father. I don't like that kind of language about myself, so I really don't know what to make about the vocabulary of being saved. But the language of salvation is not all the way through, not just all the way through Scripture. It is the clearest and most accurate way of talking about me before Jesus and me after Jesus. I was lost, now I'm saved. I was blind, and now I see. I was in the dark, he has brought me into the light. It is just the clearest and most accurate way of talking about life before and after Jesus Christ. This brought up an uncomfortable memory for me. How many of you have been lost in the woods before? I mean, genuinely lost in the woods. I was once, and I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I was actually on a Royal Ranger camping trip. Now, this is not to warn you against Royal Ranger camping trips. This was my fault. Uh, we went up the side of a hill with a group of friends away from the campsite. I got, some I got separated from my friends, and I went down the wrong side of the ridge. And when I got to the bottom of the hill, no campsite. Nothing looked familiar. Now, I would like to tell you that my ranger training kicked in, and because of my cool and calm demeanor, I made my way back to camp. I oriented with the sun and the trees and shadows and made my way. Moss is on this side of the tree, and here I go. That's not what happened. <laughs> A lot of running around in circles until I literally ran into the lake. It was where the camp was. That's how I found my way back. But I got to tell you, when you know you're lost, there's nothing you want more than to be found. There's nothing you want more than be saved from being lost. See, we know our need for salvation if we know that we're lost. If we don't feel we're lost, if we think we've got this, if we think we know more than he does, we're not going to like the language of being lost and found, lost and saved. But Jesus is clear. Scripture is clear. I need saving. We need saving. Oftentimes at the end of service, we'll pray a prayer, and this prayer comes right out of Scripture in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it to the Christians who are in Rome. He says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's the clearest way of talking about life before and after Jesus Christ. And then continuing this image of him being the good shepherd and us being his sheep, he said, and they're going to go in and out, and they're going to find pasture. It's this image taken from the Old Testament, and it's just a very simple way of talking about peace and safety and security. The eye of the good shepherd is upon us, and we can walk out of that pen, and we know his eye is on us. We know his hand is with us. We know that nothing will happen to us unless his hand allows it. He is the good shepherd, and we are his sheep. Friends, all of this, this language of salvation and of us being the sheep of his pasture, all of this is good news to you and to me. It is the way of life. It is the way into peace and safety. It is the way of life into meaning and purpose that is available to every one of us here and now. Not just after death, 
but here and now. And this is important to us. It's important to what we believe about our walk with Christ, and it's important to what we believe about why we talk about this to the rest of the world. Here's what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians about how important this is. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20, he says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He did this for us. Now he asks us to spread the word. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He is the door, and anyone who comes through him will be saved, not counting their trespasses against them. They are forgiven and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I'm begging you, Corinthians. We're ambassadors of this message. This is good news for you. This is good, for your, good news for your neighbor. I implore you, make things right with God. That's how important this is to the church of Jesus Christ. So listen, friends, the good news that the church has to offer the world is not niceness. It is not social justice. It is salvation found in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. That's the good news the church has to offer. All that comes from that, works its way out through us, begins with salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the good news that the church has to offer this world. So Jesus begins talking about salvation. He begins talking about this life of peace and safety, finding pasture in the family of God, all of these beautiful, wonderful things he talks about. And then he says this in verse 10. Now there is a thief, and the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So I want to talk for the next few minutes about the thief and the good shepherd. Jesus has talked about thieves and he's talked about robbers, these individuals who are after the sheep, these false teachers, these false ways of life that want to separate sheep from the shepherd. So he's talked about that and now he moves to the thief, our enemy, the devil. It's not silly to talk about this. It's important to talk about this. A real, actual, personal entity whose goal is to destroy you and me. That is his goal. That's why he does what he does. So his goal, our, the, our enemy's goal is to destroy the things that are most valuable to Jesus Christ. Last week we said as we think through this image of Jesus as the good shepherd, what is inside of that sheepfold is what is valuable to the shepherd. That is why the thief is after it. That is why the enemy is after your soul. That's why he's after your life, your family, your thought life. That's why he's after you. It's because you're valuable to Jesus Christ. And what he wants to do is separate you from him. That's his job. So make no mistake, that is his goal, to separate you from your church, your family, from Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of uh, one of the lines from uh, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Let's hold on to those lines in our head as we talk about the way of the enemy, the way of life of the enemy. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. First of all, the way of our enemy, it is destructive and it is divisive. He tears apart everything that God intended to be built. Everything that God intended to be put together, the enemy wants to pull apart. Everything God intended to build inside of our lives, inside of our social structures, our families, our friendships, our local bodies of believers, everything that God wants to build, the enemy wants to destroy. It is destructive and it is divisive. And he tears us away from the truth that is in God. Jesus has already warned us in John chapter 8 that he is the father of lies. And when he speaks lies, he speaks his native language. That's what he knows to say. That's, and he knows how to do it so well that you and I sometimes cannot distinguish lies from the truth. That's how good he is at it, right? So he's the father of lies, and he intends to separate us from each other and from Jesus Christ. The author and uh, philosopher Dallas Willard He put it like this in a lecture. He said, when we separate people from the truth, we remove their ability to deal with reality. When we separate people from the truth, we remove their ability to deal with reality. So when a small student is taught that 2 plus 2 equals 4, not only are are they going to get that answer right on the test later on in the week, they actually have now a connection to reality. That's just how two plus two works. That's just how the universe works. Two plus two equals four. Now they're actually able to deal with reality. If a teacher teaches a student that two plus two can equal just about anything you want it to, that's not kind, that's not flexible, that's not loving, it's manipulative. If that child does not learn that two plus two equals four, you have removed their ability to deal with reality until they're taught the truth. So this is the case with things as simple as a sum, arithmetic, and it is just as true with moral and religious reality. If people are separated from the truth that there is in Jesus Christ, from the truth about who they are, that I am lost and I need to be saved, If we are separated from those kinds of truth, the enemy has successfully separated us from our ability to deal with the things as they really are with reality. He separated us from Jesus Christ. So living by those kinds of lies means that we're living according to the manipulation of the liar. We now try to live according to things that just are not reality. So the truth of Jesus Christ sets us free from that. And it was in that same conversation in John chapter 8 where he says, your enemy, the devil, is the father of lies. He tells that same group of people, but if you follow me and hold to my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You're now able to deal with reality. There are two 
and this is, this is Pastor Phil saying the kinds of things that Pastor Phil just wants to say. There are two primary falsehoods. I mean, there's a lot going on in our world right now, but there are two great big dominant falsehoods inside of our particular culture right now that we have to keep our eyes on. The first is that the state is more important than family and church. It's a lie. It's not the way God set things up. The state has a role to fill, but it's not more important than the family or the local church. And the lies that come out as a result of that are pernicious and destructive. The second primary lie that is at work inside of our culture right now is that sexuality is infinitely flexible. And it is part of our own personal um, expressivism, our, what, what we feel about ourselves. We can choose anything at any time. And what that does is it wreaks havoc inside of the lives of individuals and families. It tears people apart. It's the father of lies. The thief comes not to be nice to you until the very end, but to destroy you. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. So his way, the way of the enemy, it's destructive and it's divisive. His goal is to isolate you and to build despair. His goal is to isolate you and to build despair. Despair is what happens when we lose hope. When there's nothing else we think left for us or for the rest of this world or for uh, you know, the people who are around me, then I fall into despair. And those are deep and dark and dangerous places, but it makes the enemy thrilled when he isolates us from Jesus Christ, isolates us from the presence of our Heavenly Father, isolates us from our, uh, our biological families and from our spiritual families. He separates us, and like a, like a coal being pulled away from the fire, it eventually grows cold and dies. The enemy loves that. He's come to steal and kill and destroy. Isolation makes us vulnerable to the enemy. Keep this in mind. Isolation makes us vulnerable to the enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter's warning the church about very similar things. So he tells those Christians, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Can he separate the zebra from the herd and take it down? He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. His goal is to isolate and to build the despair. And then <laughs> he would be perfectly happy to kill you. That sounds crazy to be put in that kind of language, but Jesus says he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. These are not metaphors. These are literally true. He would be happy to kill you. How much human sin ends in death, war, injustice, suicide, abortion. The enemy is happy with every single one of those, as much as he can get. I've, I tell you sometimes I follow too much news, which is probably why I'm more grumpy than I should be. But on Christmas Day, there was a, a political statistics organization called 538, and on Christmas Day, they tweeted out asking for people to share their abortion stories. 
And it was in a positive sense. We want to celebrate this. We want to talk about this. And they did it on Christmas Day, a day in which we celebrate not just the birth of a child, but the birth of God in flesh, Jesus Christ. They chose to celebrate the destruction, the murder of children inside of the womb. Last year during the March on Life rally, there were two counter, or March for Life rally, not March on Life, March for Life rally, there happened to be two counter-protesters caught on video camera, and these two poor young women stood up there in front of that camera, and they took um, the morning-after pills on camera, those abortive fashions. And so if they were pregnant, chances were they, caught, they committed abortion while they were there on camera. Those two poor young ladies have been captured by the enemy, and he is perfectly happy with death. As many as he can kill, he's happy with that. Why? Because he's separating us from Jesus Christ. What are we being saved from? The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. What are we being saved for? But I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Let's go back to that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A few lines later, the hymn says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. On earth there is no equal to our enemy, but Christ is our Lord. And God has willed that his truth will triumph through his people. So the abundant life of Jesus Christ, this word abundant, is just as straightforward in the Greek as it is in the English. It means more than enough. It means more than you will ever be able to carry at once. You can come back to it over and over and over, and you will never exhaust its resources. You will go back to Jesus Christ over and over, and you will never exhaust his resources for you. It's abundant life that is offered in Jesus Christ. Again, Dallas Willard, in a book that he wrote called Life Without Lack, he says this, Unlimited in resources, just as he is unlimited in love, he is the good shepherd who generously provides for our every need. We can imagine a God who is unlimited in resources but stingy in love. He's got everything you need. He's got more than you need, but he may not give it to you. That's not the God that we're talking about. We're talking about the good shepherd who's come to give you this abundant life. So you see, Jesus intends for us to understand the life that he offers in direct contrast to the way of life brought by the enemy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. What do we mean by abundant life? As followers of Jesus Christ, as, as God is having his way within us in every season of life, what do we mean by abundant life? As soon as you buy a Tesla, you have abundant life. One of those giant X's should hit the screen and get great big buzzer sounds, right? Here's what Scripture says about abundant life. Abundant life results when my thoughts 
emotions, and desires are shaped by Christ instead of my sins. When my thoughts and my emotions and my desires are shaped by Jesus Christ instead of my sins. If you stop and reflect for a couple of moments, you know what your life is like when it is shaped by your sin, when it is shaped by the things that you know you should not have said or done, or the things you should have done that you didn't, or you knew that your emotions were malformed, your loves were just the opposite. You cursed instead of blessed. Just a couple of moments of reflection, and you know what life is like when all these things are shaped by my own sin. But he's come to give us abundant life, where all of these things can now be shaped by him. My own sinfulness leads me into the path of my enemy. This leads me into the way of Jesus Christ. There's a passage of Scripture that just overwhelms me every time I'm reminded of it, every time I read it. And I want to read it this morning and just sort of lay it in our laps, stick it in our minds this week. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. He's granted to us abundant life. So that through them, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. God's given you all of this so that now you can partake in His kind of life instead of the kind of life that we know too well, the kind of life that is shaped by our sinful desires. God has given us an escape from that. And it's the power that He's given us to live according to His divine nature through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is an amazing passage. The rest of that section those first few verses of 2 Peter chapter 1 turn into this list of Peter then says, now I want you to add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to your, and to your knowledge self-control. He says, here's what I want to be added to your life. What God has granted to you can be described this way, and so we grow in this way. He actually gives us the vocabulary. He gives us the ideas that we need to pursue and to understand, and it's incredible. It is a different life than what I lead most days, and it's a life I want. <laughs> Imagine the kingdom life. Imagine with me for a moment things that could be true about me if my thoughts and emotions and desires were shaped more by Christ than by my sinful nature. Over the years, I've created a couple of lists like this. And so I just want to, again, lay this out to you. This is just a short list. All of this comes out of Scripture, either directly or the, the ideas that are in Scripture about what life is like in Jesus Christ. So imagine what this abundant life could be like. Courage instead of mediocrity. 
for God's causes on behalf of the people that I love. Courage is this virtue inside of the Christian faith. In the world of virtues and vices, virtues and vices are opposites. Every virtue has an opposite. The virtue of courage, its opposite is not fear. The opposite of courage is not fear, it's sloth. It's, I'm just not going to do anything. It's, I just don't care enough. But what about this abundant life could actually create courage inside of us instead of mediocrity and sloth for the cause of God on behalf of the people that I love? What does that life look like? What about a life motivated by God's truth and beauty instead of fear and anxiety? This is why the enemy is so hard at work right now building fear and anxiety because the other kind of life is abundant life in Jesus Christ. What if my, I have a tongue that is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on that one. What about, and we talked about this over Advent, over Christmas, a joy that just cannot be shaken by the circumstances of my life. It doesn't ignore them. It doesn't pretend they don't exist. But it's a joy that just cannot be shaken by the circumstances of my life. That's what the joy of the Lord, that's how the joy of the Lord is talked about in Scripture. What about being able to live according to wisdom that comes from the mind and compassion of God? The older I get, the more I pray, God, I need wisdom. What if I'm able to live according to the wisdom of God, according to His mind and His compassion? What about having patience that is stronger than my anger? Again, no show of hands, please. <laughs> what about patience that eventually overwhelms my unrighteous anger? What would that household look like? What would those conversations sound like? What would change in my life if this were true? if I'm more, we're more shaped by Jesus Christ here than by my own sins. A tongue that blesses instead of curses. My goodness, how would things change? Or what about the ability to forgive the way that God forgave me? Paul is clear in Colossians chapter three, just simply says, talking to Christians, forgive the way you've been forgiven. Ponder that for a couple of minutes and you realize, I'm not sure I can do that yet. But this is part of the abundant life that God has given us. So I'm going to give you homework. And I will not tell you whether or not there will be a test next week. I'm just going to leave you hanging. I'm going to give you homework. Take 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 home and just spend time with it. Read it through slowly. Pray it through. If you write things out, if you journal, just, just do it. Spend time with that passage of Scripture. First Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Another way of understanding the abundant life that there is in Jesus Christ is that abundant life is filled with the presence and with the will of God. His will becomes more dominant in my life than my broken sinful will. His presence is something that leads and guides me more often than not. This abundant life is filled with the presence and the will of God. And even if I don't feel this, 
I can know that it's true. God's steadfast love never ceases. His mercies are new every single morning. The eye of the good shepherd is always upon us. Psalm 16, verse 11, says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You show me what this life is like. You make known to me this way of life. And it is abundant. So God intends... Friends, and I know, and we have to talk in this kind of language because we lose sight of it, and, and our relationship with God is often more of a roller coaster than it should be. It's, it's just the way of things, and I totally understand that. But God intends for this intimate relationship with Him to become evident in the regular patterns of our lives. This intimate relationship of us with the Good Shepherd, He calls us by name and we follow Him. We hear His voice. He intends for that to become a part of the regular patterns of our lives. Not just the big moments, not just we put on our Christian shirt for Sunday morning, we show up, we do this, we go home, and then those other patterns don't belong to Jesus Christ. That's not the abundant life of Jesus Christ. So Christ is presenting, with, uh, presenting us a parable describing himself in shockingly personal language. He does not say, I am the good engineer. I sort of put the whole great big watch together. I wound it up and I let it go, and here you are. I'm not the good engineer. I'm not the good manager. I just sort of oversee things. Your name is, is on a flow chart somewhere, and as long as you're doing your job, we're going to hit our marks for the quarter. He's not the good manager. He's not the good guru. I've got a lot of good ideas, some wise things. You follow what I say on a regular basis. You're going to do better than not. He's not the good financial wizard. You're going to get that blessing if you say the right words. He's the good shepherd. The shepherd is covered in the same dirt that the sheep are. The shepherd smells like sheep. The shepherd is not hired seasonal help who comes and goes. He's the good shepherd. He knows your name. He calls out to you. We learn to hear his voice. He leads us in and out. And the good shepherd helps us find pasture where there is peace and safety under the eyes of Jesus Christ. So the abundant life with Jesus is not an abstract thing. It is an intensely personal, real, practical relationship thing with Jesus Christ. It's not a what kind of cool things can He do for me thing. It is a I get to know the Creator of all things and I get to follow the Good Shepherd. That's what this is. But this can only become a part of our lives. It can only grow in our lives if we walk in through the door, if Jesus is the standard. 
We go that way and we will be saved. That's where we find safety. That's where we find good pasture. It only happens, friends, when we follow Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Let's pray.